And once you have it, uh, go ahead and turn to Luke 19. We are going to depart from our verse-by-verse, line-by-line study that we normally are going through in the book of Acts, seeing as how today is Palm Sunday or the day we recognize when Jesus triumphantly came into Jerusalem leading up to his death on the cross to pay the price for our sins. And the Gospel of Luke, where we're going to be in, is it's, this is the same Luke who actually wrote the book of Acts. It's one of the four Gospels included in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And all four Gospels, if, if I'm going to sum what they're about, they're basically give an account of the life of Jesus. And Gospel literally means good news because that is what the life of Jesus is to anyone that chooses to listen and believe and receive him as their Lord and Savior. It's the best news you could ever receive. So up to this point in Luke 19, just to give you some background and know where we're at, Jesus had just got done correcting his followers regarding the true purpose of his first coming as they were looking for him to come and establish his kingdom on this earth so that they could be freed of the oppression they were under by the Roman Empire. But as we looked at on Thursday night, um, a couple Thursday nights ago when we went through Daniel 7, uh, Jesus did not come in his first coming to establish his physical kingdom on this earth. That's going to happen in his second coming, the next time he comes. But in his first coming, he came to uh, allow us the opportunity to become a part of his kingdom, to pay the price for our sins, to meet the greater needs so that we could be saved and be a part of his kingdom. And so knowing that he's about to leave his followers, he gives them this parable of a servant being faithful to their master, basically a master in charging them with some things to invest for him while he's gone and he was in sense encouraging them and what was going to happen when I leave. Just be faithful to utilize the things I've given you to invest in the mission I've given you, which we talked about last week. And that is to share the good news with whoever God brings into your path and make disciples, train them up in, in the word of God, teach them the ways of Jesus. That's our mission. There's a lot in that, but that's the mission. Just simple as that. And so he's kind of encouraging them, knowing that he's going to leave and they're going to be startled. Just stay on mission until I come back to get you. And so that's where we're going to pick it up in Luke 19. So let me pray or let me read through the text in, in, in its entirety and then we'll pray and then we'll start going through it. So it says, this is Luke 19, starting in verse 28. And when he, this is Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage, and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, 
the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, knowing what this you coming into Jerusalem ultimately leads to, Lord, it's, it is just, it's powerful in, in just understanding that right off the bat that you, you came willingly into what ultimately led to you being crucified unjustly. It led to you being punished and tormented, not for anything that you did wrong, but for everything I've done and do wrong and everyone else in this world. And as your word says, because of your great love for us, because God so loved the world, he was willing to give his only son. It's because you loved us, even at our worst, when we weren't even looking for you, when we were stuck in bondage to our sin, that is when you loved us and you gave us the greatest demonstration of love that one could give. That has changed our lives, Lord, understanding that, believing that, receiving that gift that you've freely given us of forgiveness. It wasn't for free for you. It cost you your life. But you knew that was the only way to save us and reconcile us to the Lord, our creator, so that we could spend eternity with him. And we are forever grateful for that, Lord. May you just minister this truth to us in a whole new way today as we go through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So verse 28 says, and when he had said these things, what I just talked about, this parable he had given them, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So Jesus heads to Jerusalem, Again, we've talked about this a couple times already. Most assuredly, understanding what was coming, understanding that he was about to be crucified uh, within a week to pay the, the price for the sins of mankind. And we're shown here, among other places in Scripture, that uh, nobody forced him to do this, right? Like, he, he's totally willingly he's coming on his own regard And he enters here in Jerusalem very openly and publicly knowing that the religious leaders wanted to do away with him, wanting to kill him, all right? He's not trying to hide anything. And he did this as Hebrews 12, 2 specifically tells us, because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. So that joy that was awaiting him was the fact that he knew that you needed to be saved and that you would believe and receive that free gift of salvation and be brought into a relationship. He saw that reconciliation in your life. And because of that, he was willing to endure what happened at the cross. Have you ever had someone in your life willing to suffer shame for you or potentially endure some type of pain for you on your behalf, maybe emotionally, maybe physically. I can think of this instance back when I was in eighth grade. I just moved up to the Oregon area from California, 
And I was the new kid in school. And sometimes the new kid in school is the one that the school bully goes after, right? So the school bully came after me. And this popular kid, for no reason that I still understand to this day, but just for whatever reason, had compassion or care for me, stepped in and told him to leave me alone. And from that point on, that kid became a good friend of mine all through school. Because I was moved by that, that he cared enough to step in at the risk of him having to endure some shame. Because we all know how school politics go. All right. If you stick up for someone that isn't necessarily part of the popular crowd or whatever, you risk losing your status or being made fun of yourself or potentially suffering harm at the school bully. But all those Things set aside, he, or knowing those things, he was willing to step in for me. And that compassion or that care moved me to like, I want to know this guy. I want to hang out with this guy. And he became one of my better friends. Now, as great as that was, the thing is, in comparison to what Jesus was willing to endure for us, the shame, the ridicule of dying a sinner's death on the cross, even though he didn't do anything to deserve that. The pain and the suffering that came with that so that we could be his friend. No single greater act of love has or will ever be shown to you in me other than that. Amen. And that should make us want to be his friend in return. He actually, it tells us in John 15, 12 through 15, this is just Jesus speaking. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I've loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends. Since I have told you everything the father told me. Isn't that crazy that Jesus wants to be your friend? That's what he says. And that compassion and that care he's shown for you should make you reciprocate that. Want to know this is somebody I definitely want to be my friend. Amen? Now back to the text. It says in John 12, 12, that there was a large crowd that had come to Jerusalem for this Passover celebration. This would have been... Uh, Sunday or the 10th day of Nisan or the first month of the Jewish calendar, four days before the Passover feast. And then according to Exodus 12, verses 3 through 6, this is the day that everyone would choose the lamb that they were going to sacrifice as the offering for Passover. And then they'd watch it from the 10th through the 14th day to make sure there was nothing a matter with it because it had to be perfect and have no blemishes, all right? So this is crazy because in the midst of what some estimate to be a couple hundred thousand lambs being brought in with the people that were coming to Jerusalem for Passover, here in the midst of it is the Lamb of God, as the Bible calls Jesus, who was there to be the once and for all sacrifice for all the sins of mankind. Now, biblical, biblical scholars smarter than me have done the math and believe this exact day that Jesus came into Jerusalem was prophesied about 
hundreds of years before in the book of Daniel. Something we're going to look at more detail when we go through Daniel 9, but just in reference to it briefly, Daniel 9, 25 says, Now listen and understand. Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, this being Jesus, comes. So seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven equals 69 total sets of seven year periods, which equals a total of 483 years. 483 years from March 14th, 445 BC, which was the exact date that a lot of scholars believe that Artaxerxes, king of Persia, gave the order for the Jews to rebuild Jerusalem in Nehemiah 2. It actually shows that. That that total amount of years would be a total of 173,880 days using a 360-day calendar year, which is what Israel used in Daniel's day. And that happens to land that amount of days from that day that he made this degree lands on April 6, AD 32, which fits right in the time frame that this should all be happening. All right. Now, some people debate, you know, what calendar year to use or what the anointed one coming actually means. That means Jesus being born. It means his crucifixion and so there's different dates people kind of figure out but in one way or another most scholars agree that that is an accurate prophecy in daniel 9 given hundreds of years before jesus was even born and that is further evidence of the validity of this book and it being like none others because the bible is the only thing that accurately has predicted the future over and over again, and will continue to do that as we get near to Jesus' return. Amen? So it says in verse 39, when he drew near to Bethage in Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, or this is the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So Jesus sends a couple of disciples to go and get a horse or a colt that had never been ridden before, an unbridled colt um, that that he said they'd find there. And I can imagine if I was in the disciples' like places here, I'd have all types of questions. I'd be like, okay, well, where's there? And and. How are we going to know this is a cult? Is the owner going to be okay with us taking the cult? Why do you even need this cult? If it's never been written, is it even going to come with us? You know, there's a lot of things that kind of just have that mentality of like, I don't know, Jesus. Should I really? Why are you wanting me to do this? That doubt. And we know from the other gospel accounts that this was a young, young donkey that Jesus ends up riding into Jerusalem to ultimately fulfill another messianic prophecy that was written hundreds of years before in Zechariah 9.9. This says, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Now, a donkey wasn't typically used by men of war. They would often ride horses or basically walk on foot with their troops. Donkeys, however, spoke of peace and would often be rode 
by priests or people that came in the name of peace. Sometimes young cults also being ridden by royalty. So in doing this, Jesus was making a very clear statement here in that his intentions were not to come and militarily set up to come and conquer and and establish his kingdom on this earth in his first coming, but rather that he came as the Prince of Peace, as he's called in Isaiah 9, 6. Jesus' first mission, very clearly we know from this and other places in Scripture, was to create a spiritual kingdom with those that believed in him that would receive peace with God through their faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross so their sins could be forgiven. And it's interesting to me here that Jesus makes this statement to his disciples to tell the owners of this cult that Jesus was in need of that cult. I mean, understanding who Jesus is, right? I mean, Jesus is the son of God. He's equal with God. Does it make sense that God being all powerful and sovereign and control really has need of anything? No, he doesn't, right? And obviously, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that it's because he needed it to, to, to walk that last little bit of distance. I mean, he had just walked from uh, Galilee to Bethany, which is about 40 miles. So this last two miles shouldn't have really made a difference. But it makes you wonder, what is the reason that he needs anything? What, what, why is he asking that? One reason was to fulfill that prophecy, as we already talked about. But here's the next thing, because he wanted to involve his disciples in his miraculous work. All throughout Jesus' ministry, the Son of God, who is in sovereign control of everything going on, being equal with God, chooses to be in need of people's help, of our help, of his disciples' help. So they can be a part of his work and see his glory revealed through them and in them. Here's some examples. He needed a boat from Simon from which to preach and then have the most epic day of fishing ever in Luke 5, 3 through 6. Yep, that's right. He needed five loaves and two fish from which to feed the massive crowd of 5,000 plus people in Matthew 14, 16 through 18. Pretty sure that if he could have multiplied that to feed them, he really didn't even need the five loaves and two fish, but he chose to need them. He needed a room to celebrate Passover and share the Last Supper with the disciples in Matthew 26, 18. He needed a tomb to be resurrected in, according to Matthew 27, 60. Even though he was fully God, Jesus constantly chose to place himself in a position of need. And Paul tells us why in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, he says, you know, the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty, he could make you rich through him willingly setting aside his power and his privilege that came with his deity. Philippians 2, 7 tells us that it doesn't mean he wasn't fully God. He was fully God and fully man, but he set aside that power and that privilege that came with that to live as a man. And that ultimately culminated with him dying on a cross because there's no way he deserved that. But through that, he created the ability for us to have a relationship with him. And one of the greatest privileges of that relationship is that the Lord chooses you to partner with him in the great 
work he wants to do on this earth. Why? So you can experience the riches of his grace in favor. It isn't that he needs to use us to do anything. It's that he wants to use you. So you will be blessed just like the disciples were in seeing the miraculously crazy things God does in you and through you every day. Amen. Let me give you a crazy little example of this. I'm pretty excited about it. I'm excited when I see God do things. Aren't you? Some, yeah, yes. Amen. But on, on Wednesday morning, I'll just give you a little example. Wednesday morning, we can, we have our prayer at 630. By the way, any of you guys are invited to that? We just start out the day with a simple time of prayer and worship at our annex in Warrington. So um, usually I have a smaller crowd for that because it involves getting up early. And I know everyone can't really do that. Um, but it's worth your time if you do. So anyways, we had a new woman show up and I didn't recognize her. And it's really weird for someone newer that to show up to prayer first. That's usually something they start coming to church. Then they come to prayer. But I didn't recognize her and, and, and I didn't know as I introduced myself at, at, at the beginning and she made it clear that she was somebody that had kind of grown up in church, hadn't been for a while. She had trouble because of her job getting here on Sundays. So she just, she wanted, she wanted to come back and she shows up at prayer. And so this is somebody that probably hadn't been in church for a long time. So she joined us, you know, we, you know, prayed for an hour and worshiped. And at the end of our time, I really felt led to lead us in a song. The song specifically, I love you, Lord. Any of you guys that know the way I sing, that takes some faith. You know, like I, it was just pressed on my heart, like you're to sing this. And I'm just like, really, Lord, why? <laughs> That's my response. All right. But it's just like, just, just trust me. And so I led us in that. And then we, we closed prayer and I proceeded to kind of, you know, talk to her and find out more where she, whatever. And she was really emotional. And she was just like, man, that, that song, this is somebody that's coming back to church, that song, that the Lord, the Lord had you do that for me. Because I don't remember tons of stuff from when I was a kid growing up in church, but I do remember that song. And see, that, that's, that's what the Lord wants to do with us, right? Whether it's preaching the word and telling others the good news about Jesus or doing other acts of love, like, like the disciples fed the multitude or just breaking bread with your church family and God working through our conversation or encouraging each other or you, you having that specific thing that God has helped you conquer and him using that to help free someone else of a bondage that they're, that he saved them out of. Whatever it is, the Lord's chosen to say to every single one of you that have placed your faith in him, I need you and I want to do really cool things in your life. Amen. And the best way we can respond to him is like we're going to see with these disciples, whether it makes sense to you or not, you just obey. Because Ephesians 2.10 says that long ago he preordained good works for you specifically to walk in and experience in your life. I think of my little my little two-year-old, Zeke. When I tell him, oh, you want to come do something with dad? He gets so excited. Now he's two. He doesn't understand fully what it is he's going to be getting into, but he knows if dad is saying it, it's going to be good and it's going to be fun. All right. He loves it when I'm like, you want to come mow the lawn with dad? And he, all he sees is like, that thing is loud. That looks cool. I don't know how it works, but I'm going to come and I'm going to push this thing with dad. And he's not really doing anything, but he just has the time of his life. 
I'm just trying to keep him from going under it, you know. I mean, I'm worried as heck. <laughs> but he's having the time of his life. And that's kind of how it is with us. We don't need to understand. Just obey. And you will have the time of your life with God. Amen? There's nothing about following Jesus that's supposed to be boring. Okay? Nothing. If it is boring, it's because we're just learning to have faith still and listen. If we listen and obey, it'll be the most epic thing you've ever experienced. Amen? And that's what you see for these guys. And they listen. It says in verse 32, So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And uh, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Man, now I can see myself in this situation. And as soon as like the owner's like, what are you doing? I'd be like, see, I told you, Lord. I'm like, this is stupid. I'm like, I knew it. I'm going to get busted. But they don't do that, right? They're just like, they listen to him in faith. They don't panic. They're just like, the, the Lord has need of it. And and the guy miraculously lets him have it, right? Who does that? I mean, that's just the cool stuff Jesus does. He gives them this horse. I don't know if you, you guys would give your horse away for free if somebody comes up to it. If they said the Lord it has need of it, you probably wouldn't even do it. But this guy did. That's just the Lord. It was the Lord's will, right? I think of like in, in um, the whole example in uh, John 11, which I think is a really great one, where Lazarus has died, Jesus' friend, and his sisters are really upset and they have all this faith in God until or Jesus until he asks them to do something that makes no sense. Right. Because he's like, roll away the stone. And in in, in uh, um, Martha's like, um, he's going to stink. I mean, he's been in there for four days and his response is, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe if we will just believe and listen, you will see God's glory all through your life. All right. That's that, that's it. It's my lack of faith. That prevents me from seeing all the cool things God wants to do. Now, another miraculous detail to note here that shows speaks of Jesus's deity is the fact that an unbridled horse let him ride it. Right? I mean, I don't know you guys, if you guys got horses that never been ridden by people, how how accepting are they to you to jump on their back and get going? Right? I remember that my my we. we of all things, my, my younger brother, when we moved up to Oregon, we had like a ranch and we're, we're not like, like animal people, but like he wanted a pony to ride. And so we got this pony. Didn't know that it, it, it like, I mean, I don't know if ponies are made to be ridden. It was smaller. It, he was younger, but having said that, I don't know if it had been ridden because he tried to get on and that thing bucked him off and was not about it. But having said that, this horse, this, this young donkey, it allows Jesus to ride it. And he rides into Jerusalem, his disciples having thrown their cloaks on the colt. They probably were making some sort of crude saddle. And then other people are welcoming him by throwing cloaks on the road. That's a way in that culture that they would show honor and submission. Actually, we see in Second Kings 9.13, when uh, Jehu is made king, that the people come around him and throw their cloaks down. It was kind of just acknowledging who Jesus was. Other gospel accounts saying that people were laying palm branches down on the road as well um that's why we get the name palm sunday uh the palm tree just some history on that being an important symbol of victory for israel is if you guys are familiar uh they when god delivers them out of egypt he gives them a feast to specifically remember that victory he gave them what's it called hey israel missionaries the feast to remember they're bringing out of egypt 
All right. Uh, Feast of Tabernacles, though, too. Yes. Um, it's part of it. All right. So that was a that was a seven day celebration. All right. And basically you are there young people in here because you well, maybe even some of your older people. Pretty cool because you got to live in like like makeshift forts for seven days. All right. Because basically when they were brought out in the wilderness, they'd have to make like shelter. And so they'd have to move out of their houses and make forts out of different types of uh, brush and stuff. And Levit- Leviticus 23, 40 through 43 says one of those things was palm branches. So the point of that celebration, don't remember or don't forget God's victory, his great victory in, in bringing you out of Egypt so that when you're faced with future trials, you remember if God delivered you once, he will keep delivering you. And so this palm branch became kind of a symbol of God's, not only his past victories in their life, but God's going to give us future victories, okay? So at this point in history, they're looking for victory over the Romans who were oppressing them. And they see Jesus coming. They see him on a young donkey. They think of this passage in Zechariah 9.9, this prophecy of their king coming. And they assume that he's established, coming to establish his kingdom on this earth, all right? And, and give them victory over the Romans, all right? Um, so they're spreading their garments and their, their palm branches in allegiance to, to King Jesus. He's coming to save us. Amen. Here's the one the Lord has sent. And that's kind of their attitude, but it quickly changes when they find out that he didn't come to do what they wanted him to do. Right? Because those cries of like King Jesus and Hosanna, as we're going to see, they quickly change to crucify him as soon as things didn't work out the way that they wanted even though he was addressing an even greater need in their lives and saving them from their sin and how quickly that can be me i mean honestly i can look at that and kind of be judgmental about it but when i don't see things going the way in my life i can kind of turn my attitude against god as well like why are you doing this and question him and that's the same thing they're struggling with now it says in verse 37 as he was drawing near Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, Jesus, up to this point, he wasn't in the publicity. If you guys know the Gospels, he wasn't into people making a big deal of who he was, but he's understanding that at this point, These guys or the people acknowledging publicly him as the Messiah would put his enemies into a place of either having to accept him for who he was or label him an imposter, which means that they would have to punish him, which he knew would ultimately lead to his death, which was necessary for our sins to be paid for. So this crowd, they honor Jesus as he rides in. They're praising God, as verse 37 says, for all the things they've seen Jesus do, because he's done a bunch of things to prove that obviously he's from God. And they're acknowledging that they want him to be their king uh, when they're quoting that mess. They're quoting a messianic reference from Psalm 118, 25 through 26. It says, save us, we pray, or some translations say, Hosanna, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from uh, the house of the Lord. Some some of the other gospel accounts say they were literally saying Hosanna, which means save us now. They're 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 chanting save us from the Romans. That's their heart. They're not understanding their need to be saved from their sin. 
And this scene is very typical of how people would welcome like a victorious king and and an army back from battle. Basically, when they were coming into town, they'd all kind of join. They'd praise them. Sometimes there'd be symbols of that victory, like palm branches and stuff. And they'd all come and they'd usually go straight to the temple because whatever gods they worshipped, they would go to do a sacrifice for those gods to, you know, basically thank them for giving them victory in the battle. And we know further in this chapter, we're not going to get to it today because we don't have time. But further in this chapter, Jesus does go straight to the temple, but he doesn't go to worship or do a sacrifice to himself. What does he do? That's right. He goes to clean it out because the, the money changers there and the people selling sacrifices were ripping people off and hindering them from coming to God. And that is what Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to get rid of this hindrance ultimately caused by sin. And so they were doing the very thing that God did not want them to do and preventing people from coming to God. So he goes there and he, he sets that straight before he ultimately paid the price for sin that got rid of any hindrance of going to God for anyone that believes. Amen. And it says in verse 39, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So the Pharisees, they don't approve, obviously, because they don't want Jesus to, to be accepted as the Messiah. So they don't approve what's being said. They tell him, make your people stop. I like what commentator David Gusick had to say about this passage. He, his quote says, Nothing tells Satan and his followers that they have lost like the praises of God ringing in their ears. Satan loses because when God's people are really worshiping, their hearts and minds are on him and not on sin, self, or Satan's distractions. And it says that in John twelve nineteen, in John's account of this, that the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. Or in essence, they understood we've lost. Like, we failed at convincing these people that Jesus is not who he says he is, that he's not the Messiah, that he's not the son of God. And they realized that, which led to them having to go forward with their plan to get rid of him. And this is this response by the Pharisees is really interesting because these these are religious leaders that believed in God, right? They they knew God's word. They wouldn't declare that God was like not real. I mean, they would, they would have understanding about him. They know what God's word said. They knew all these prophecies. They had seen themselves these miracles Jesus did, and they didn't really deny them. They just didn't want to believe them. And so they, of all people, should have believed and acknowledged him as king. But the reality is they just, it wasn't that they didn't believe in a coming king. They just didn't want him to be king of their lives at this point because they liked being king of their own lives. And that right there is a struggle that every single one of us should be able to relate to. When I talk to people that have a problem believing in the God of the Bible or God in general, there's a common issue I see. Some refuse to believe God in general, just that there is no God. It's what's called a... um, What's the word I'm thinking for? Atheist. Yeah. The agnostic was the other one I was thinking of. But atheist, somebody doesn't believe in God in general. Despite what they say, because a lot of people say like, oh, that's just stupid. Like intellectually, it's, it's not intellectual. It's moral that's causing their unbelief. Because if they acknowledge he's real, that means they're responsible to answering to him. If there's a creator, 
then obviously whatever he says is right. And that means if I don't agree, I'm wrong. And that means that if I'm doing something that he says is bad, then I should stop doing it. And they don't want to acknowledge that because they don't want to stop doing it. All right. Even though that very thing is destroying them and harmful. That's why God's told them that. Right. In essence, they want to be kings of their own life. Now, some say, well, I can believe in God agnostic, but he's got to fit into the mold of who I think he should be. All right. Basically, in essence, he doesn't get to be the king and dictate their beliefs. He can be a part of their life, but they still get to rule themselves as in their minds. I know better or I know best. And here's the thing. That's not God. That's an idol. You're just making up for yourself who you think God should be. And that's not real. And here's the thing. Just a just a logical point. Any God that you worship that you get to tell him who to be, he ain't worth worshiping. All right. If he's really God. And we should listen to what he says. And that's the only God that's worth worshiping, all right? And John talks about these things. He says in John 3, 16 through 21, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light. For their actions were evil. And all who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. Amen. God did not come to judge anyone. On the contrary, he came to save everyone. And if you choose not to receive that, you're just bringing judgment on yourself. There's no reason for it other than loving that darkness but see, God in his word exposes it what it is. It is darkness. It's evil. It is hurting you. It is hurting others. And God has brought his son to show us that so that he can save us from it. Amen. So to truly be saved or to truly understand Jesus, to truly be saved by him. It's not just about him being our savior. It's also about allowing him to be our king. And here's the thing. Knowing how horrible I was at trying to be king of my own life, knowing how still horrible I am when I choose to do things that I think are wise and I make stupid mistakes and I have to pay the consequences for those. It should be an easy thing for me to acknowledge I need God who is perfect and never makes any mistakes to lead me and rule over me. That's not in a bad way. That's the only way that I can experience the blessedness God intends. And Jesus' response to these Pharisees is that even if the people stop praising him, he's like, here's the thing. Even the rocks will praise me. Lots of verses in scripture telling us how creation praises God. Amen? All right. Well, as the worship team comes up here, let me end on that thought. Let me, let me give you this one last passage and we'll kind of sum up. John 1, 10 through 13. 
says he, this is Jesus, was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 1.11 tells us that Jesus came to his own creation and the very people he created did not welcome and receive him. As we're seeing here as he comes into Jerusalem. Now, nature, his creation also, had no problem receiving Jesus, all right? You want some evidence for that? Well, how about the water that supported him when he walked on it in Matthew 14, 25? Or how about the wind and the storm in Mark 4, 9 that toned it down when he said stop? Or the rocks, as it says here in verse 40 in Luke 19, that were ready to praise him. It's only humanity that struggles with receiving Jesus. And here's what I want to get at is it's not because we don't have worship to give. It's not because we aren't looking for things to rule over us. That should be so clear in the world over the last couple of years. Everybody wants to be told what to do. What is going to keep me safe? What is going to make my life better? Oh, that person I think has it. I'm going to follow them. Or that diet has it. I'm going to follow that. We are looking constantly for things to rule over us, to be our kings, to worship and give our praise to, thinking that somehow they're going to make our lives better. And here is the thing. Everything in this world, every person in this world will somehow and at some point just disappoint us. And it won't be what we thought it was. It'll leave us discontent. It'll lead to bad things. It'll lead to discouragement. How many of you guys have experienced that? I have over and over. Before I was saved, most certainly. And even after I'm saved, when I still look to things, putting the wrong hope in them. There's only one that is worthy of all your praise and all your worship. And to be king of your life. And that's Jesus. And he's more than demonstrated it in the fact that he loved you so much. He was willing to go through what he went through on that cross. As we're going to talk more about next week. But as most of you know. That have placed your faith in him. He's more than worthy. He's more than proved how much he cares for you. And that he only has good intention through you. By doing the single greatest act of love anyone has ever done and will ever done in your life, and that's dying for you. Amen? And because of that, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we need to constantly ask ourselves, is he the king of our lives? Right? I find myself, the longer I follow him, even now, like over 20 years later, I still have areas of my life that he has to reveal to me and show me... You're not giving this to me. You're not trusting this. You're trying to rule over it yourself. Or times I'm disappointed and I find that, well, I was looking for that thing. I was putting my hope in that. I was praising that wrong thing or worshiping that wrong thing. And look, here I am, disappointed again. I need to constantly 
be checking my relationship and making sure that, Lord, I'm all of me is yours. I want to hold anything back. I've seen every time I give you a part of me or I, I, I put my hope in you, I look to you to rule and lead me. It always leads to good things. It always does, even when I don't understand. I don't want to hold anything back from you. Help me not hold anything back from you. Reveal those things. And for those in here that haven't made Jesus king of their life, maybe this is resonating to you. The Holy Spirit's just telling you, this is what you need. This is who you've been looking for. I I agree with that, man. I'm sick of trying to rule my own life. I keep trying to do things that in my mind are the right decisions. They're for good reasons and yet they never work out or they never work out the way I want and they always lead to disappointment and it's because we can't rule ourselves. We weren't made to. We were made to have a relationship with God, our perfect father in heaven, just as my kids need me to guide them through life, to look out for them, to take care of them, To an even greater degree, every single one of us needs God to do that. And Jesus made it possible so every single one of us could. Amen? But you are responsible for receiving that gift. For acknowledging your need for Jesus to save you from your sin. Acknowledging that his work on the cross did that for you. And then, welcoming him into your life. Saving you so that you've been reconciled with God. You have peace with God. When God sees you, he sees you as perfect as you ever could be by the blood of Jesus. And then you having a relationship for all eternity because of that. That's what God wants to do for you today if you've never received him. And so what we're going to do, we're going to spend these last moments. We're going to do one song and we're going to have our prayer team around the room. And I'm going to encourage if there's anyone here that needs prayer. If you're somebody that has not placed your faith in Jesus over the last couple of weeks, we've had a couple people make that that declaration. Actually, there was someone here last week. Remember, I, I kind of just said, hey, maybe the person sitting next to you really needs to receive the Lord. When we were practicing sharing the good news, there was somebody that really needed to receive the Lord. And they got saved. And they're part of our family. Amen? Amen? That deserves a round of applause. We're happy that they're part of the family of God. But in a room this big with this many people, there's probably additional people that need to make that. So come up and get prayer. We will lead you in a prayer. It's just between you or God, but that can be really hard in knowing what to say. And so let another believer rejoice with you. It says when somebody comes to, to faith in, in Jesus, the, the heavens rejoice. The host of heaven, everyone that's there with Jesus right now, all his angels are rejoicing every time somebody gets saved because they're part of the family. You're going to be there. So let us, as your church family, rejoice with you. Come up and get prayer. If you're somebody that just that resonates like, man, I I am trying to be king of my life. I mean, I've placed my faith in Jesus and I want to be king of my life, but I'm struggling with this thing and I understand it's because I'm trying to rule my own life. I'm trying to do what I think is best and I'm trying to control things and manipulate things. And man, God has given me no reason to doubt that he only has good things. I want to hand it over to him. Come up and we'll pray with you on that. The rest of us, come up and get your communion elements because after this song, we're going to take communion together as a church. I'll kind of lead us through that. That's something reserved for believers because we're giving uh, significance. We're acknowledging the work of the cross. So 
Obviously, if you're not saved, you, you don't know how to do that. So the, the best thing you can do is get saved right now. Place your faith in Jesus, as I said, and then join us in remembering the cross. We'll do that together. So just grab your elements during this time and hold them, and we'll do it in between these songs. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you so much for the saving work of the cross. Thank you for what you've done for us as it's already done. Lord, again, we are just humbled. We acknowledge that we were helpless apart from you before you came into our lives. I look at all the bad choices I made, even choices that I thought were good. I didn't want to make bad choices, but I was truly lost. I knew no better. I was one of those that was blinded by the darkness. My motives were wrong. My thoughts were wrong. I needed you to come into my life and give me a whole new understanding to be the light, to expose the the evil, expose the wrong things, to guide me into the right decisions, to help me understand your word so I knew what was good and right. And you did all these things. You do all these things now. And Father, you have never given us a single reason not to follow you, not to want you to be king of every area of our life, to lead us in all things, to look to you for help in all things. So Lord, we want to surrender every bit of our life over to you, knowing that wherever you lead us is always good. So minister to the people here right now, wherever they're at, Lord. We know you're here in this place. We're not making this up. This is real. You died on that cross so that we could personally know you. May we just sense your presence and hear your voice in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.